Hey, 90s Crime Time listeners, and I'm specifically talking to you, my fellow lady podcasters who are tuning in. I have some amazing news, and that is from October 11th through the 14th, She Podcasts Live will be taking place in Washington, D.C. This event is the world's largest gathering of women podcasters and is perfect for audio content creators, storytellers, and more. Attendees can expect to learn from female-identifying-only podcast editors, social media marketers, authors, podcast hosts, and more during this four-day event. In fact, She Podcast Live is committed to bringing a diverse and inclusive lineup of speakers with the team working hard in order to make sure those chosen are 50% women of color like myself, LGBTQIA+, or both. They also highlight industry experts as well as leaders so attendees can get an inside look at what it's like being one on top. She Podcast Live is a great opportunity for all levels of podcasters. Register now and join us in D.C. this October on ShePodcastLive.com. And even better, when you register, you can use a special coupon code to get $50 off your ticket. And the code is 9CT. So when you purchase your ticket, make sure you use the code 9CT to get $50 off, and I'll put the link in the notes. And now, let's start the show. Hello. It's June 23rd, 2022. My name is Simone, and this is 90s Crime Time. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of 90s Crime Time. And if you're new to 90s Crime Time, welcome to the show. Like yesterday, I mentioned that I would be releasing two episodes in a row as an apology for being late on schedule, and here it is. Today's episode is focusing on my favorite true crime, uh, one of my favorite true crime subjects, uh, which is a love triangle murder. And I'm doing it now because this week is my birthday week, and I thought, why not do it now? Um, now, I know no murder or death is entertaining. Um, there's grief and there's loved ones involved. But I do find love triangles uh, and love triangle murders very interesting, just seeing how one will go to get how far one will go uh, to get revenge or to get the one they love all to themselves. But I digress, so let's get started with today's episode. The year was 1993, and in Mission Viejo, California, a commuter city in Orange County, the people in this city enjoyed their strategically planned city. This meant that this town of over 50,000 back then was meant to have its people live on the serene hills and valleys, 
to make the best use of the contours of the hilly land. Most of the people here took part in many outdoor activities, such as going to the beach, taking a hike, or rock climbing. Residents of Mission Viejo were also known, at least at that time, to have high-class salaries and tastes. Lots of the families brought in six-figure-plus salaries, lived in immaculate homes, and sent their children to great schools. In the early 1990s, a young woman in her 20s moved to Mission Viejo from her poverty-stricken upbringing with the promise of a better life. However, by 1993, a heinous crime would occur, and the woman's quote-unquote better life would come crashing down. In the following case, you'll find out what the heinous crime was, the investigation, and the tense aftermath in a case I title, All Bets Are Off. Although the crime in this story takes place in 1993, let's go back to 1990 when it all began. That year in June, a large electronics conference took place at a resort in Qingdao, China. This convention housed many electronics entrepreneurs and potential buyers of their products in hopes that sales could be made. At the convention, Novice entrepreneurs and the well-established ones attended, and according to an excerpt from a publication, they stated, quote, They were eyeing opportunities that had opened up two years earlier, when Taiwan's government eased restrictions on investment in China, end quote. One of these attendees eyeing opportunity was the very well-established electronics businessman Zhang Jinping. Jim Pang, in 1990, was 47 years old and had been a very well-accomplished businessman for decades. He founded his own electronics company, Ranger Electronics, back in 1976 in Taipei, Taiwan. And soon, Jim's company became one of the world's leading band radio manufacturers. Fast-forwarding to 1989, Ranger Electronics had 700 employees in Taiwan and was worth nearly $200 million, making Jim a very wealthy man. Also in 1989, Jim expanded Ranger Electronics to the U.S. and opened an office in San Diego and bought a gorgeous home nearby. By 1990, though, Jim attended the electronics conference and while mingling with the who's who in the electronics world of Taiwan and China, Jim decided to take some time off from networking and mingling, and decided to have fun. You see, according to reports at the conference, many businessmen sought company from many of the natives who lived in the area, and they were primarily women. Lots of the attendees at the conference were involved in relationships or even marriages, but to many, that didn't matter. They needed to relax, and they knew just how to with certain women. Jim was no different, because according to reports, 
While staying at the resort the conference was held, he came across a woman who worked there, and her name was Ran Bing Ji, a woman almost 25 years younger. Not much is publicly known about Ran Bing's early life, but according to reports, she was born in Taiwan and raised in Kandao, and she was considered by many to be the most beautiful woman in town. Ran Bing worked as a PR assistant, making $85 a month, and sometime at the conference, Jim and Ran Bing's paths crossed at the restaurant's bar. Jim was taken aback with Ran Bing's beauty and wanted to get to know her better. He introduced himself and told her about his business, and then the two struck up a great conversation. Jim and Ran Bing hit it off so well that the next morning, Ran Bing called Jim's hotel room to continue their conversation. But Jim had an even better idea. That night, one of his associates invited Ran Bing and a female friend to attend a dinner hosted by his company. After the dinner and the conference as a whole was over, Jim didn't want to lose contact with Ran Bing, so they exchanged contact information and kept in touch. Two months later in December 1990, they met up again to talk business, and Jim hired Ran Bing to work for his company in Shanghai, China as an office manager, starting in January, in which he agreed to pay her the equivalent of $129 a month, way more than what she was making at the resort. However, according to reports, Ran Bing didn't spend too much time at Rangers Electronics because she had a disagreement of sorts with another employee. But that was okay, because Jim hired her to help run a new venture, the J&J Company, which bought electrical parts. Jim liked Ran Bing working at his company, and he started to like her in more ways than one. The same could be said for Ran Bing, because hey, she didn't grow up in the best financial situation, and now she was hired personally by a very wealthy business owner, and he made sure her pay was double than what she originally made. Ran Bing was head over heels and with their mutual attraction, according to reports, by 1991, Jim and Ran Bing became intimate. Jim was smitten, and so was Ran Bing, and they almost couldn't stay away from each other. They were both living the good life. Jim kept his success going, and now he had a pretty and charming woman close by. Ran Bing was out of poverty given a higher-paying job, and was dating one of the wealthiest men she'd ever met, who was head over heels for her. The two would see each other so often, and the passion was so strong. However, Ran Bing and Jim's passion got too strong when by 1992, Ran Bing became pregnant.
was a shock. They both welcomed the idea of the pregnancy and birth of a baby. And to Jim, he thought, since he had opened up a location in California, why not move Ranbing there so she can get a new start in a new world and raise their baby in the U.S.? Ranbing welcomed the idea, and shortly after she found out she was pregnant, Jim bought Ranbing a very nice apartment in Mission Viejo, California, only a short distance from his home near San Diego. Ranbing was very excited to start her new life and her baby's life in the new country, and she was being very well taken care of by Jim. And now that she was in America, she decided to go by a different name, Jennifer. And even though he primarily worked in Taiwan still, Jim always made time for Jennifer, checking up on her and their unborn baby. And he held nothing back if she needed anything. And finally, in March 1993, Jim and Jennifer welcomed a bouncing baby boy they named Kevin G. Ping. And they couldn't have been happier. According to reports, even though Jim worked around the world on a whole other continent primarily, he still made time for baby Kevin and was pretty much hands-on. When he was in town in California, Jim and Jennifer would take family photos with baby Kevin and they looked at peace. Jennifer doted on her son. She loved feeding him and playing with him and she beamed ear to ear holding her precious baby boy. But even though family time was important to Jim, he still had business to do and would leave to go back to Taiwan, but regularly came back to California. Fast-forwarding to August 18, 1993, Jim arrived back in California for his visit to see Jennifer and baby Kevin. However, when he usually arrived back in the States, he would call Jennifer to let her know he was on the way to her place. But this time, he didn't get an answer. He called Jennifer multiple times and still nothing. Concerned, Jim took a cab straight to her apartment and knocked on her door, but there was still no answer. Panicking, he decided to get in contact with the apartment manager to see if he could check on Jennifer and Kevin. But since his name was not on her lease, the manager wouldn't let him into the apartment. So Jim decided to stay in the manager's office until he hopefully got in contact with Jennifer. However, hours went by, and he eventually went to sleep. By 11 p.m., he woke up and asked the manager to call him a cab. But first, in one last effort, he went back to Jennifer's apartment. This time, Jim decided to try and open her door, and it did. And horribly, Jim finally got his answer as to why Jennifer did not answer his calls. There in the living room, 
Jennifer was slumped over on her couch with her blouse covered in blood, with her underwear down to her knees. Jim looked closer, and by her feet, baby toys were scattered on the floor. But he didn't see Kevin. Jim got in contact with police from a neighbor's home, and when police arrived, they determined Jennifer was stabbed to death. And then as they were investigating the scene, they came across Kevin's crib. And inside, baby Kevin was lying with a t-shirt stuffed in his mouth. He had been suffocated to death at age five months. Jennifer had been stabbed 18 times. And curiously, there was a bite mark left on her left arm. They determined that Jennifer and Kevin had been killed the day before on the 17th. However, when questioned by police, Jim was adamant that he had nothing to do with the killings because he was still out of town. But police theorized, since there was no forced entry into Jennifer's apartment, Jennifer must have known she and Kevin's killer, or killers, and opened the door to them. But who would Jennifer have known who would have wanted to end she and Kevin's lives? Well, police didn't have an answer right away. And over the next few months, detectives worked hard to bring Jennifer and Kevin's killer, or killers, to justice. During the investigation, the medical examiner's office examined the bite mark left on Jennifer's body, and a closer look revealed saliva left on the body, a good piece of evidence that could possibly determine the killer. Meanwhile, while the DNA was being tested, police questioned Jim again but they noticed he seemed a little distant, like he had other things on his mind. When questioned why he was being distant and a little evasive to police, Jim said he had, quote-unquote, a lot of things going on. When asked what he meant by that, Jim broke some major news. He casually mentioned that he not only had to worry about Jennifer and Kevin's murders, he also had to deal with his wife and two sons who didn't live too far. Police were shocked. Jim never mentioned this other family to them, and they had no idea he had a wife and other children, especially living in the area. Jim confessed that he had a wife named Lisa, and they shared two sons, one a teen and the other a young adult, both enrolled in school. Now police had more information, and after administering a lie detector test to Jim, and he passed it, they decided to talk to someone else, Jim's wife, Lisa. At the time of the murders, Jim and Lisa, born Lin Yu, had been married for around two decades. And before he became the ultra-wealthy business owner, Lisa, according to reports, quit her job back home in Taiwan and focused on helping her husband build his empire. She worked long hours with Jim creating concepts for Rangers Electronics. And once it was well-established, it was decided 
Jim would do most of the networking and business trips to make the business grow even more. That was okay to Lisa, though, because after they had their sons, Lisa enjoyed their benefits of working hard, including the spacious home she and Jim purchased in California. However, by 1990, Lisa began to suspect something was up with Jim, but she couldn't figure out what it was. That was until shortly after his conference trip when Lisa went through his suitcase and found a woman's t-shirt, and it didn't belong to her. Lisa confronted Jim about it, but he told her it must have been a mix-up with the hotel laundry service. Lisa didn't believe Jim per se, but she relaxed a little. According to reports, however, in April 1991, Lisa's suspicions about Jim grew again, and this time, she decided to travel to one of his business trips to catch him in action. And her suspicions were right. Lisa found Jim at his hotel with Jennifer. She confronted the two, and she specifically told Jennifer, quote, stay away from my husband, end quote. Going back to the investigation, police questioned Lisa at she and Jim's California home and they told her about Jennifer and Kevin's murders and showed her their pictures. According to reports, when Lisa saw their pictures, she looked resigned and not surprised that a woman and her baby were murdered. She also didn't seem surprised Jim was having an affair, but she denied having anything to do with the murders. However, justice detectives were keeping their eyes on Lisa in January 1994, months after the murders, DNA left on Jennifer's body matched Lisa, and she was promptly arrested and charged with murder. After she was taken to the station, Jim caught up with Lisa right after, and he requested to speak to her before she was booked. Police agreed, but what Jim and Lisa didn't know was that what they were about to say to one another was being recorded. Privately, Jim confronted Lisa in Mandarin and yelled at her, quote-unquote, why so many stabs? And Lisa replied by telling Jim it was his fault. If he had not gotten with Jennifer, they'd still be a happy family, and that she did it due to self-defense, and that Jennifer fell on the knife. And she added it should be him going to jail. But instead, she said she'd be the one going. And shortly after their conversation, Lisa was taken to jail. Months later, Lisa's trial began in August 1995, and the prosecutor opened with the argument that Lisa was guilty because she wanted to end her husband and Jennifer's years-long affair. They added that Lisa was extremely jealous of the affair, and her jealousy turned to rage after baby Kevin was born. They also added that once in 1991, Lisa had discovered Jennifer's clothes in her closet and cut them up. And another time, while waiting on Jim to come back from a business trip, Lisa waited for him at their home in California. But when he came back, he was with Jennifer. Lisa confronted her and told her to get out of her house. But apparently, Jennifer came back and told Lisa, quote, 
Don't be so sure this is still your home. End quote. With all of this, plus if they divorced, Lisa risked getting everything she thought was hers, became too much, she decided to end the competition. However, Lisa's defense team came back and questioned why Jim wasn't looked at closer. Why didn't Jim allegedly not try to open the door to Jennifer's apartment that night in the first place? They also suggested Jim was probably the killer because he had money at stake and he chose his wife over his mistress. However, in the fall of 1995, Lisa's trial ended with a hung jury. In 1996, she was tried again, and in September 1996, Lisa Pang was found guilty of the murders of Jennifer G. and her son Kevin. And shortly after, she was sentenced to life without parole. And while she was being let out of court to jail, Lisa shouted in court, quote-unquote, It's not me. It's not me. Yet again, however, in 1999, Lisa's verdict was overturned due to the fact that it was found Lisa had not been properly informed of her rights. In 2001, Lisa's third trial began, and this trial too ended in a hung jury. With this outcome, the judge in Lisa's third trial made a deal with prosecution and gave Lisa a plea deal. They offered for her to plead guilty to manslaughter, and in doing so, she'd be deported back to Taiwan. Lisa agreed, and in June 2001, Lisa pled guilty and was shortly thereafter deported. Jim never attended any of Lisa's trials, and once her first trial began, he quickly went back to Taiwan. And after Lisa was deported back to Taiwan, she was ordered to never set foot in America again. The story of Jennifer G. and Kevin Pang's murders comes from the sources of the LA Times, Orange Coast Magazine, the Herald Times, and others I'll put in the notes. All right. Well, I have a few things to say about this case. Um, I, like I mentioned, love triangle murders are very fascinating to me. So I have a few notes I'd like to talk about, um, in my opinion, on um, this case and bring up some things. First off, um, this murder should have never happened. It was very tragic, very gruesome. Baby Kevin had nothing to do with this murder or any situation um, that the adults had, uh, had were involved in. And um, Jennifer... Yes, she was the mistress, but she had, you know, she didn't deserve this either. And um, yeah, let's get into it a little bit. Um, this whole story was very messy. Um, and primarily, I blame Jim, although Lisa's at fault. Obviously, she's the one who killed the two, Jennifer and Kevin. Um, I, you know, and he knew, Jim knew he had a wife and family nearby. And the thing to me, was that he bought his mistress an apartment not too far from his family home. Like, who does that? Like, I feel like it would, the, the apartment should have been, like, way far further than where your home was, but he probably wasn't thinking that far or that, you know, clearly. Um, but I would think that if you have a mistress and you bought her a home in the States, that you'd have that apartment way far further than your like, family home. Um, and 
reading about how Lisa quit her job. I'm not sure what her job was before in Taiwan to help Jim um, build his company up. And that's how we repaid her. But I've heard stories of that, how um, a lot of spouses quit their jobs to build their spouse's dream up or their career up and the, the spouse gets all the money and um, they pretty much leave their spouses in the dust. And Lisa was not going to have that. Um, she fought for what was hers, which I believe. So not that she should have fought in that way, but she fought for what was hers. And um, one thing that was interesting to me was that Lisa killed baby Kevin by suffocating him with a t-shirt. Now that's horrible. And baby Kevin probably suffered. Um, well, clearly he suffered because he was, you know, suffocated to death with something stuffed down his throat. But when I read about um, Lisa finding a t-shirt that wasn't hers, I'm not sure if it was Jennifer's, but I'm assuming that a t-shirt found in Jim's bag was Jennifer's. And um, she used that. I wonder if she used that t-shirt as a symbol of your mother wore this and now I'm going to kill you with it or something like that. She wore a t-shirt and had it in my man's bag and now I'm going to kill you with it. And that's very, you know, curious to me as to why she used the t-shirt when she couldn't, you know, she didn't have to do anything to be, she could have left him alone. But I thought that was kind of symbolic in my opinion in a weird way. And, um, she told Jim that Jennifer fell in the knife, like, come on, that's kind of, kind of ridiculous. Lisa, he, she didn't fall in the knife. He stabbed her horribly 18 times and left her underwear down by her knees which was really like just a disgrace and that's ultimate revenge and she you know made her pay in her way and it was horrible what Lisa did and I that's another symbolic thing like putting her under putting Jennifer's underwear down by her ankles or her knees um and I've heard that before too like that's the ultimate disrespect um to do that to someone like to discard them like trash and put their underwear down to their ankles in a, a form of disrespect and um i don't know how lisa found out about the baby um she obviously knew about jennifer and i wonder if she stalked her and you know found out she was pregnant and put you and two together like wait that's jim's baby she's having and i can't have that and um, she was embarrassed and hurt and she thought that Jim loved her. Um, maybe Jim did love her, but he just wanted some stuff, you know, some loving on the side and it went horribly, horribly wrong. And, um, one thing, another thing to me was Jennifer had her things in Lisa's closet. And I'm like, did Jim not notice? Like, I don't know if he didn't notice or he didn't care or thought, oh, you know, Lisa may not really pay attention. You know, like a dumb thought like that. And I'm pretty sure he knew that Jennifer put her clothes in Lisa's closet. And it, I don't know. That's just so messy and bad. And um, when Lisa was going through her trial, like, why did Jim leave so soon back to Taiwan? Like, was he embarrassed or did he want to get back to business? Because again, they had Lisa and Jim had two sons enrolled in school. So he left his boys like that. I don't know why, but maybe he thought, I don't know what he thought, but um, I don't know if the uh, student, uh, the boys, their sons finished school in America. I'm not sure, but I think they did. If I remember correctly, reading that correctly. And now, um, Lisa was deported back to Taiwan um, to never set foot in America again. So I'm assuming she's never been back to America. She's been deported. Um, I know that probably America has a really strict security system and she couldn't come back. And if she wanted to even visit for a vacation um, and um, it's a very fascinating case. And lastly, one of the more fascinating things was that um, 
a lot of the Asian community in California, this was like apparently their OJ trial, like big, big trial. Um, cause a lot of the English uh, speaking people, like, I guess like Americans, like um, English, like Native Americans really, well, Natives of America, guys, sorry. Natives of America, um, didn't really pay attention, um, to this trial, like the people, Asian American community, more specifically the Chinese American and, um, Taiwanese American, uh, communities. Um, and they, a lot of them felt so bad for Lisa and they wrote letters to the judge, the first judge in the case pleading for leniency because they saw her as a bitter, scorned, hurt woman by Jim. And this was pretty much Jim's fault in their minds. And unfortunately, they did call Jennifer bad names and called her a gold digger and all this stuff. Um, and um, they ble- they begged for leniency for Lisa. Um, and she technically did get leniency because she, still, she could still be in prison forever doing a double murder in America. But she was deported back home to Taiwan. And um, yeah, this all very interesting case. One of the craziest love triangle murders I've ever heard. And um, yeah, that's it. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of 90s Crime Time. And I hope you were intrigued. Uh, Once again, I know no murder is entertaining, but I do find love triangle murders fascinating and see what the parties involved um, were about and stories uh, that got them to this point. But anyway, if you liked what you heard on today's show and have not done so yet, please rate 90s Crime Time on any platform that has a rating system, primarily Apple or Spotify. Or you can let me know what you think on 90s Crime Time's social media, uh, such as Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. Lastly, I would like to give a shout out, a special shout out to one of 90s Crime Time's biggest fans, and his name is Chad. He has helped the show stay afloat in a big way, and he knows how, but I would personally like to thank Chad for all he has done, so thank you, Chad. And with that, stay safe and healthy, have a great weekend. I will try to I will try to have a great weekend because it's my birthday this weekend on Saturday, whoop whoop, um, and I will see you soon, I promise, for a brand new episode of 90s Crime Time. Mm-hmm.